and welcome to the Famous Five podcast, in which we share with you a Famous Five adventure written by Enid Blyton. Today's book is Five Go Off to Camp. If you haven't read the book and you don't want to be subject to spoilers, please turn off now and come back when you've read it. And welcome to episode seven of the Famous Five podcast. How are you, Jen? I'm really well, thank you. How are you? I'm not bad. Did you have a nice Christmas and New Year? Because it is January now. Yes, I did. For Christmas, I got a cat. Not really. I got loads of cat stuff, but I have since started fostering a cat, a lovely darling called Helena, who I'm looking at right now. And she's just washing her belly. How was your Christmas? What did you get? What did Santa bring? Oh, lots of things. Mostly Disney, but I got some really nice cross-stitch and um, yeah, it was really good. That sounds wonderful. So we welcome to the podcast our very special guest, Charlie Revel-Smith. Hello, everyone. Yay! Hi, Charlie. Hello. Very nice to be here. Thank you. So you are a fan of the Famous Five. How did you get into it and why? How did I get into it? I was lucky enough to grow up in a household that had lots of books, lots of different types of books. And this was sort of something which I'd discovered. I was trying to think when this would have been, probably was about nine or ten at the time, when I first found, I think the first one was Five Go Off in a Caravan. That was the first one I read. And I loved it. And my mum was really, really pleased. And slowly over time, started gathering up all the rest of them from charity shops, secondhand shops. And I think I... I think I've managed to, to get through the majority of them, almost all of them. I think there are a few which I didn't get through. I think this actually might have been one of them because it had very little recollection of it at the time. So from where I actually grew up, it was a very rural area and it wasn't always able to get everything you wanted. There wasn't always stuff in the shops. Libraries weren't always open. So I sort of built up a catalogue of myself and had a lot of fun. It's a very, very enjoyable way to spend childhood I think that's such a fun way to get into them because that was how I got into most of my reading and actually the reason I didn't read Famous Five when I was younger was because they didn't have it at my local library so I never you know read one and realized that I loved it and I guess I probably didn't see them in charity shops and stuff because I read a lot of other Enid Blyton but Famous Five just never crossed my path out of interest, Jen, if they had, would you have read them as a child? Oh, definitely, yes. Yeah, yeah, thought so. Yeah, I mean, I would read anything. I would read, like, the back of a cereal packet if there was nothing else, like, literally anything. So I would have loved these books. It was actually one of the interesting things I read, probably on Wikipedia, I think, about how, until Enid Blyton started writing these books in specific, there was books that were aimed at children were sort of divided right down the middle. These are books for boys, these are books for girls, and there was very little, anything in between. There was hardly anybody writing anything else. And the famous five almost appealed to them 50-50. She almost invented that kind of genre of boys and girls have an adventure together. And it was a crossover book, and it was enormously successful. And since then, this sort of genre seems to have appealed to boys and girls, and I think that's quite fantastic yeah that's amazing oh that's so cool I never even thought about that before that there would have yeah had to be a series or a book which broke the mold and it was these historical tomes I'm sure we'll 
touch on this a bit later on, but a lot of aspects of the books haven't aged very well at all. But they have lasted, and they've done so for a reason. And I think it's that, at their heart, they are rip-roaring yarns. They're adventure stories, breezy, easy-to-read page-turners. Yeah. And they were also nostalgic at the time of being written, so it wasn't as if they aged you know over the next few decades because they were very much set when they were set they were I was reading something about how you know the language was even quite old fashioned for the 40s so I guess if something starts off nostalgic it's not then particularly going to age yes I mean if you look at films from around that era things like Brief Encounter which still has very stylized language Mm. but they certainly weren't talking like this even though it was aimed towards adults in that in that film you sort of think that this was kind of a set in the time and a place which never really existed even at that time Mm. we'd still kind of like to imagine that it did at some point like britain had once been like this it had once been an adventure countryside even if it never happened yeah yeah i think that is a lot of the appeal isn't it because no matter when you're reading it even if you read them when they were published you think oh this is what it used to be like Mm. but yeah (laughs) it probably never was is it is the year ever specified in any of the books do you know i certainly can't remember not to my knowledge uh yeah not yet there was a reference to television in one book if i remember yep um five on kieran island again they referenced the television so we kind of understand it was sort of contemporary, but a fantasised version of Britain at that time. Yeah, and there is mm-hmm. another sort of time-specific comment made, but we'll get to that later because that's actually in this book. There was also, I think, in the previous one, there was very telling of being the 1940s. I think Anne actually mentioned an atomic bomb. Yeah, yes, it was, she did. Other than that, I don't think anything was tied to the period that they're actually in, I think they're just out in the countryside. And it could have been a hundred years before, for the most part, as far as technology was concerned. Yeah. I was going to say something like the countryside is is ageless, but I then it sounded weird in my head. I like that. So uh, oh, let's, uh, let's crack on, shall we? So five go off to camp. The synopsis on the back of my book says this holiday, the famous five are thrilled to be camping up on a wild moor. But the moor isn't totally deserted. They can hear strange noises from the derelict railway yard nearby. The five are warned to stay away, so of course they plan to investigate. Something mysterious is happening underground. Who is driving the trains at night and why? Love it. Mine starts off super punchy. Mine's very short. It's spook trains in the dead of the night. They seem to vanish into thin air. Where do they go? The famous five follow the tracks and discover a very unusual underground destination. That's, yeah, that's the same as my synopsis as well. Oh! Listeners, you are going to have to get used to the phrase spook trains because it's it's coming up a lot. Yes. Every single page of this book. Yeah, pretty much every page, spook trains. Even when they realise it's just a regular train, they still are like, Oh, this is the spook train. Like when you know it's <laughs> you know it's not a spook train now. I was wondering about the term spook train. Was this a term that was in use already or was it something that she made up just to distinguish it from a ghost train? Like a ride you'd find at a fun fair. 
did she invent the spook train instead? Because we're never really told or given a decent explanation for what a spook train is, as far as I was concerned. Yeah, a mysterious train. As far as, like, a train's not supposed to be there. Well, that's an interesting thought, actually. Uh, yeah, because ghost train would be something that people would recognise more, but she loved the idea of spook train, so she said it a hundred times. Yeah, I think it's probably something that she put together herself. A quick Google doesn't really help anything. There's a horror film called Spook Train and you can ride the Halloween Spook Train at the Keefley and Worth Valley Railway, Haworth, if you're in the north of England. Oh, that sounds amazing. Excellent. I feel like we should have done that for like an on-location visit. It's actually the the steam train there. I've been on it a couple of times. It's absolutely fantastic. If you visiting Haworth from Keefley, Haworth is where the Bronte sisters' house is. And they have a 1940s themed weekend. I've been there twice. And they dress the village up to look like 1940s. A lot of the people that live there dress in 1940s clothes and stuff. It's fantastic. It was a good few years ago, but I'm sure they're still doing it. And to go there on a steam train is amazing. And somebody had put a sign uh, saying, look out at the station. And if you've ever read or seen the Railway Children... Uh, you'll know that that's what they put to alert the gentleman on the train. And my heart just sang when I saw that because I love the railway children. Anyway, let's jump into chapter one. The children are off to the moors on a camping holiday, but not by themselves. Mr. Luffy, who is a master at the boys' school and a friend of their father's, and he's also an insect enthusiast. The boys liked him and thought him fun, but... The idea of Mr. Luffy keeping an eye on them struck them as very comical. It's more likely we'll have to keep an eye on him, said Julian. He's the sort of chap whose tent will always be falling down on top of him, or he'll run out of water, or sit down on his bag of eggs. Old Luffy seems to live in the world of insects, not in our world. So the parents have really chosen a very responsible adult to go with the children. That is so fun, actually, that you chose that bit to read, and then you said that because I had put a little mark one sentence after that where um he seems to live in the world of insects not in our world and then george says well he can go and live in the world of insects if he likes so long as he doesn't interfere with us said george who hated interfering people and <laughs> I, as soon as she said that i was like yes we do hate interferers especially interfering adults in the famous five because you can't get on with your adventures if they're all up in your business so of course the parents would choose someone who's barely able to look after the children because they have to have an adventure. It is a peculiar choice of theirs, but I really like Mr. Luffy. Me too. I thought he was a really enjoyable character. There are these delightful bits where he sort of understands and likes the fact that these kids might want to be by themselves. He he pitches his tent away from them to give them space. Mm. Later on, he realises they won't really want him going on a walk with them even though they invited him. Stuff like that, which I think makes him a really likeable background character. Agree, yes. I agree. It's rare that you get an adult in a children's book that has the sort of forethought to think of the children's feelings from their perspective and not just say, well, surely they want me along because I'm the cool adult or I'm, you know, I'm in charge, so I'm definitely going. It's nice. It's a nice character trait. The children have got new sleeping bags, and to test them, they spend a night on the floor at home. Anne wants a sleeping bag for Timmy. 
good girl and yes and love it when <laughs> George is saying no he's not gonna have one and Anne says can we get him just a small sleeping bag he looks so sweet with his head poking out of the top and George says Timmy hates looking sweet okay sorry George there are certain conversations between Anne and George that remind me of conversations between you and me yes agreed you cannot deny Anne the fact that Timmy really would look very cute with your head sticking out of a sleeping bag that is just a fact wouldn't he Yes. Yes. Thank you, Charlie. Do you know, I'll tie my hanky round both of your mouths. Goodness. <laughs> That's what George threatens to do. Yes, I know. George, she's so firm in her in her beliefs. Bless her. <laughs> when departure day arrives, Mr. Luffy is late, and their parents want them not to have any awful adventures. I'm sure this time will be exactly what happens. <laughs> yeah. In chapter two, Mr. Luffy drives too fast. He has the intention to teach the children all about insects. He's a happy sort, and Timmy eats one of his sandwiches. They arrive at the moors and eat, of course. They choose separate campsites and set up their tents. There is so much food in this book. I know, I love it. This seems unusual, even for the famous five. There are references to them eating. I have, I have no idea how much they're actually eating. They must be having. 6,000 calories each is absolutely astounding how much these children actually consume. Yeah, because there's a day where they have a breakfast, a huge lunch, a huge dinner, and then they go home and they're like, oh, I can't face a huge tea. So Anne just makes them a little tea. And it's like, you don't you don't need that fourth meal, dears. You're, you're going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> because they're all in bed by 10 o'clock. So it's not as if they're getting up really early and going to bed really late and there's time for another meal yeah because there's actually there's a time where julian wakes up at 6 30 and he thinks oh no it's a bit too early and then he wakes up at 7 30 and the girls are like come on lazy so i guess they wake up at seven just judging from those two extremes but yeah seven till ten you don't need four huge meals it almost feels like ina blyton is like she's she's obsessed with the fact that we need to know these kids are getting the right amount of nutrition each day so even like a little throwaway moment that happens later on in the book, where there's a boy goes into the town, we have to know he has enough sandwiches while he's in his library. No one can be without food at any time. But you know what they are almost always without is something to drink. They eat, eat, eat. And then, I mean, maybe three times in the book it's mentioned that they have a drink. There really aren't lashings of ginger beer. That's a complete stereotype no. of them. <laughs> There's a deficit of ginger beer. Yes. These children are totally <laughs> dehydrated. I think they drink from the stream a lot. They just don't talk about it. Oh, okay. They have some lime juice and water a few times. In chapter three, in the morning, Dick and Julian bathe and Anne makes breakfast. They decide that it's late enough to wake Mr. Luffy, but he's not in his tent. He's out bug hunting. Anne sends everybody off to the farmhouse, and when she finishes her chores, she goes for a little walk. She sits on a hilltop, but hears a loud rumbling and sees a great cloud of white smoke. Anne leapt to her feet in a panic. She fled down the hill, screaming loudly, It's a volcano! Help, help! I've been sitting on a volcano! It's going to burst! It's sending out smoke! Help, help! It's a volcano! I love her so much. I love Anne in this bit. <laughs> I just think it is... It's such an adorable thing for her to think. 
But at the same time, she's going on the evidence that she has. There's rumbling in the hill. There's steam rising. I would probably come to the conclusion that there was a volcano. Yeah. It's just her enthusiastic overreaction to what's happening. It's charming. It is very sweet. She is as mad as a box of frogs at some point. Yeah. Um, I remember from one of the first books where she thinks Timmy is barking at the wreck because he may think it's a whale. (laughs) Her logic is amazing. It is. It makes a certain amount of sense. And it's and it's nice just to to look into Anne world. It looks like a fun place to live. (laughs) Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And She's quite imaginative, which I like. You don't see that from many of the other kids. She just has a bit of dreaminess, which I find very nice indeed. Yeah, that's true. She does have that, doesn't she? Because, yeah, with this, she thinks it's a volcano. And with the wreck, she's like, maybe he thinks it's a whale. She's always, yeah, she's always got something going on. And any chance we get to talk about Anne that's not in the context of making the food or tidying the whatever is great. Yes, love it. Mr. Luffy explains that there are two or three long train tunnels and the smoke and noise is caused by the trains. Anne is embarrassed, but Mr. Luffy promises not to tell the others and Anne cooks him breakfast. That is very good adult behaviour. Well done, Mr. Luffy. I know. He is a good grown-up. However, he did just let an 11-year-old cook him breakfast. (laughs) Well, he's... I mean, we've been told a few times and we're only just finished chapter three that he's absolutely useless. So, you know, and we know how competent Anne is. So he isn't <laughs> safe hands. In chapter four, the others return and talk about the farmhouse with its brand new expensive machinery and how there's a grand piano and an expensive car. Dick says the farmer's boy showed them some lorries that are used to cart things to market and Mr Luffy wonders how a small farm could produce enough to need the lorries. The children take a picnic and go on a walk. They hear the train noise and Anne declares she isn't scared and the boys had deliberately not told the girls to see their reaction. They set off down the hill and discover old railway lines and a tunnel. They see old wagons and give one a push. An old man with a wooden leg yells at them. He mentions spook trains which interests them. He says they come at night all by themselves. His name is Wooden Leg Sam the Watchman, and then he chases them away. They assume he imagined the spook trains, and as much as Anne would hate to see one, Julian and Dick would love to, and think they might go back one night to have a look. This was the chapter where where Dick gets a cinder thrown at him. Is that right? Yes. Does anyone know what... What a cinder mint. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, um, does anybody know what a cinder is? Because I was really concerned for Dick. I thought it was a cinder block. Me one too. One of those huge Yeah, me blocks. too. I was like, that's it. Dick is dead. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the famous four. Dick's gone and I've only, just, I've only just got to know him. It was just so astoundingly violent in my head, at least. I can believe it. A cinder is kind of like the burning embers of a fire, uh-huh. you know, like Cinderella. Cinder, she sat among the embers of the fire. So it would be a bit of coal that was probably all burnt, but just would have kind of gone to oh, ash when it hit him. So goodness. no, it wouldn't have hurt him. Still quite violent. It's though. still horrific to throw things at children, but it sets up the character of Wooden Leg Sam the Watchman. Another bit which I loved in this chapter was Anne. She gets a, she gets to try and pretends to look brave, where George is really frightened of the sound of the trains and just sits there just casually, like, I'm not the least bit concerned. And she never has to confess that she knew secretly all about mm. it. 
and I liked Anne getting to kind of play act and pretend at being braver than she is. Yeah. I didn't like the fact that Julian and Dick knew and didn't tell the girls. Me neither. That seems out of character. There's Mm. a lot of that in this book. I know, and I think that's the first example of it. Yes, agreed. Because now that I've finished the book and I know how many different times they do that, like they're no girls club, that's the first time where they're like, oh, we've got the boys thing happening. We know a thing and we're not going to tell them. Yeah, it's not really how they roll. No. It seems especially unfair that as they know how scared Anne gets on of these kind of things, it seems a bit, it's a bit mean-spirited not to have mm. let her in on it. Yes. And in the last book, George risked her life to go and save Timmy and Uncle Quentin and the island. And now all of a sudden they're like, oh, you can't come, you're a girl. No, boys. No, no, no. We'll get on to that shortly. In chapter five, on their way back to camp, they meet an old shepherd and they ask him about spook trains. The shepherd says he's heard them too. And without asking his name, they invite him to share their picnic but he declines. Julian says they'll have to ask the farm boy, another person whose name they haven't bothered to ask. Back at camp, Anne tells Mr. Luffy about Wooden Leg Sam and the spook trains. Mr. Luffy seems more interested in a beetle he found. They eat, of course, and go to bed. And as Julian and Dick are talking about spook trains, Timmy startles them. A dark shape stood looking in the tent flap. It gave a little whine. Oh, it's you, Timmy. Would you mind not coming and pretending you're a spook train or something? Said Dick. And if you dare to put as much as half a paw on my middle, I'll scare you down the hill with a roar like a man-eating tiger. Go away. Timmy put a paw on Julian. Julian yelled out to George. George, call this dog of yours off, will you? He's just about to turn himself round twenty times on my middle and curl himself up for the night. There was no answer from George. Timmy, feeling that he was not wanted, disappeared. He went back to George and curled himself up on her feet. Then he put his nose down on his paws and slept. Spooky Timmy, murmured Julian, rearranging (laughs) himself. Timmy, spooky. No, I mean, oh dear, what do I mean? Shut up, said Dick. What with you and Timmy messing about, I can't get to sleep. I loved Spooky Timmy, Timmy Spooky very much. Because that's one of your catchphrases on our other podcast, Jen, isn't it? Yes, if something's spooky, I'm always into it. So in this book, we've got Spooky Timmy. (laughs) I thought it made a nice change to how Timmy's just always depicted as being so benignly lovely. It's nice to have him come across as being a little bit creepy in the uh, sticking his nose in the tent at night. Yeah. Because sometimes dogs can scare the life out of you. Yes. If my dog ever lies down on a black towel, you can't see her, so I almost always fall over her. Yeah, my dog, he likes sleeping in dark corners, and he quite he kind of likes spending time by himself and just being alone. So he'll go and find the darkest spot on the darkest bit of carpet, and we'll just sort of sit there, or lie there asleep, wait for you to stumble over him. Dogs can have this weird ability to just vanish from one place and show up in another in complete silence. Perhaps all dogs are spooky. I think Shadow is named because she behaves like a shadow sometimes. Unless there's wooden floors and then you just hear click, 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 click. (laughs) Oh, I love the little click of dog toenails on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Snap. Right, where are we? Chapter six. Before we move on to chapter six, I do have to, just near the end of chapter five, there is an excellent food reference, which I think 
casts a very good light on the character of Anne and Mr. Luffy, where they're going to bed and Mr. Luffy says, I'm going to turn in. Good night. We'll make plans tomorrow morning. I'll bring up some breakfast for you if you like. I've got some tins of sardines. Oh, thanks, said Anne. And there's some of this cake left. I hope you won't think that's too funny a breakfast, Mr. Luffy. Sardines and fruit cake? Not a bit. It sounds a most sensible meal, came Mr. Luffy's voice from down the hillside. <laughs> yes. He's great. I really like Mr. Luffy. Agreed. Me too. I really enjoy the fact that Anne and Mr. Luffy develop like a really quite a nice, sweet yes. friendship between each other. It's like they see each other on the same wavelength. It is. It is. In chapter six, Mr. Luffy is off with his insects. The children head to the farm, where it's noted the farmhands don't look too busy. They meet the farm boy, whose name is Jock, and he shows them his dog Biddy's puppies. The four children exclaimed over the fat little puppies, and Anne took one out very gently. It cuddled into her arms and made funny little whining noises. I wish it was mine, said Anne. I should call it Cuddle. What a frightful name for a dog, said George scornfully. Just like this kind of silly name you would think of, Jen, or Anne. <gasps> I think Cuddle is a wonderful name for a dog. Cuddle. No. Yeah. Imagine being at the park and going, here, Cuddle, here, Cuddle. No. The only thing that I think is not good about the name Cuddle is it's not, I feel like with dogs, it's good if you've got a name that can be sort of like a clear name. So when you call them, they can hear it and make it out. And I think Cuddle is sort of a softer sound. But I think it's very sweet. I'll call my next cat Cuddle because cats don't respond to their names no matter how you say it. Oh, no. Moving on swiftly. Jock says his (laughs) stepfather isn't much of a farmer and his mother runs the farm. His mother, Mrs Andrews, invites them to eat. Jock introduces them to the one decent worker on the farm, Will, who we never hear of again. The setup of the farm seems odd, but Jock says his stepfather, Mr. Andrews, likes to buy cheap and sell dear. I've put a note in this chapter that says suspicious stepfather because as soon as he was mentioned, I thought, here's the villain. I'm I'm glad you mentioned Will and how he vanishes. Mm. I was I was going through the book and thinking, where did he go? His, I mean, his characterised quite nicely and we get a sort of sense of him and then he's gone and it's never mentioned again. It's very strange indeed. I did wonder, I don't know how she wrote and I wonder if she put him in in case they needed somebody else, you know, if Mr Luffy wasn't going to come to the rescue at the end, uh. then somebody, and obviously it would have to be a man, would come to the rescue. So It might be something, something that got lost in the second draft perhaps like i'm just cross out the rest of him i've gone over the word count is an unnecessary addition and she just sort of left that in as almost like a mistake because his an irrelevance the only thing i can think of that she would leave it in for is to contrast with the other workers on the farm yeah okay i suppose there is that we do hear about how sloppy the other workers are and yeah. how inefficient they are and perhaps a bit lazy his noble farmer is the the one we root for. But even so, he didn't need half a chapter on him, did he? <laughs> Probably not, no. Anyway, in chapter seven, they eat a huge meal, and outside, Anne cuddles a puppy, and they ask Jock about spook trains. Jock is very excited. He's never had an adventure before. He suggests they go and look for a train, much to Anne's dismay. 
they agree to take Jock with them if they do go. After more food, Mr Andrew comes home looking harassed, and when Jock asks him about spook trains, he has a strange reaction and asks them to tell him all they know. This is a trait with, I don't know what you'd call them, child guest stars, I suppose. They don't know not to tell the adults. Yeah. Because Martin, in Kieran Island again, told his guardian immediately. And the, the famous five are like, no, don't tell the adults. They ruin all the things. But he immediately spills the beans. And I, I think we're supposed to get... Like the sort of like the first inkling of the fury of the stepdad, Mr. Andrews. You know, it's sort of foreshadowing events which happen later on, and that he's really quite a frightening figure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Something I do like about having these guest children giving it all away is that it used to mostly be Anne, and then she was always getting kicked black and blue under the table. So she's not getting kicked anymore if there's these other little little ones that can't keep their mouths shut. Yes, saves her ankles. Saves her ankles, yeah. In Chapter 8, Julian tells a very short version, and Mr Andrews tells them never to go there and it's a bad place. He says the trains might take them away. Julian is afraid of Anne being scared and says they'll leave. They receive more warnings to stay away from the yard. On the way home, they discuss whether they would go to the yard and whether George would go. Julian says she won't. She has to stay with Anne. And here begins, I don't know what begins. The The major problem of the book. Yes. They have never been this divided in any of the previous books. And it's also never been so patronising towards the girls before. And But just before this bit, when I was reading it, I actually texted you, Katie, saying, wow, Julian is being so sensible. He's handling things so well. I'm loving him. And you wrote me back something like, see how you feel later. And I was like, oh, this is all going to change. But yeah, looking at it again now, I can see from earlier where he's already kind of been a butt in this one. But he did he did handle it well. So, you know, 10 points to him for this because he saw that Anne was getting upset and he cut it short. But later he is such a butt that it doesn't really make up for it. Julian handles adults really well, but not his own cousin. I really I really don't understand why they're written like this this time around. This is the seventh adventure now, and Anne has been through... I mean, she's been scared, but she's been through scarier experiences than and more extreme things than they've been through in this. Everyone is suddenly treating her like none of the previous stuff happened before, or like she isn't able to take on any of this stuff, and it's quite unfair having the characters split like this down the middle especially it being boys and girls i don't like it and i i don't understand why it was done like this me neither for no reason especially mm. as they've met this other character who they're going to take with them who's a boy and he's allowed to go for me it feels like julian is hiding behind the excuse of anne can't be left on her own to not include george it's not a case of he's actually worried about anne because the argument there is well somebody else could stay with anne why does it have to be george who always stays with anne just cuz she's a girl you're her brother mm-hmm. why why doesn't dick have to stay with anne why doesn't julian have... because the at the end of the day fair enough if anne doesn't want to go and they don't want to leave her on their own that's a decent enough reason but it feels like an excuse to say that's why you can't come. Not, yeah. well, one of us will have to stay behind. You're staying behind. Mm-hmm. 
Even if they drew straws, like even if they drew lots and said, right, whoever pulls the short straw stays with Anne. That's a fair way to do it. Not, well, you're the girl, so you're staying. So, oh, I, I get very, very cross about this. And if, if Ina Blyton really wanted George and Anne together, she could have them draw straws. George would pull the short straw and she'd be mad and sulking. But at least it would feel fair. Yes. This, what happens in this circumstance is it's unjust. They're so usually not unfair. Yeah. I mean, usually it's great how much they treat, George especially, they don't treat her any differently because she's a girl. They don't doubt her abilities. This time around, it just felt like she was just sidelined and lumped in with Anne Mm. and she was just Anne's protector. And it's... It's not very satisfying. It's not very nice. They're supposed to be a gang. Yeah. In chapter nine, it's the next day and the children wait for Jock to visit. They wait all day and he doesn't turn up. Later, whilst they're sleeping, Dick wakes up and sees movement outside of the tent. It's Jock. He's brought food, obviously, and in order to keep warm, Mm. shares Dick's sleeping bag. Oh, it's so weird. I, I tell you what, it's so weird, but it also made me feel horribly uncomfortable just reading it because I'm someone who I when people who I don't know very very well I like to keep a certain amount of bodily space away from them yeah I just know them very well the thought of getting into a sleeping bag with someone who I'd just met a day before and was just like it just it made my toes cold just reading it how cold would I have to be it would be Antarctic cold for me to have to get into a sleeping bag with a Almost complete stranger. Yeah, and they even mention how tight a squeeze it is. Even even when it's just them by themselves, we hear how snug they yeah. are. And also, has Jock taken his shoes off? Because nobody is putting their shoes when they've just <laughs> walked on the moor into a bag that I then have to sleep in with my bare feet. It's just such a weird detail. Because I would not have read that and gone, oh, he must be cold. Like, even if he just wrapped a spare blanket around himself. It was just one of those things. I had to read it about three times, thinking, is that really what happened? He got in the sleeping bag? It's just odd and unnecessary. It was very, very weird, Enid. I'm really glad that everybody agrees with me, because when, when I write up the chapter summaries, I put things in, and obviously I leave things out, and I was like, I've got to put that in, because I need that to be spoken about out loud. <laughs> and I'm glad we did it. So Jock explains that his stepfather took him out for the day so he couldn't come and visit the children. And he's arranged for Jock to meet up to play with Cecil Dearlove the next day. It's all very odd. The boys decide they will sneak off the next night and not tell George. Timmy escorts Jock home and then returns to camp. In the morning, Anne finds the food that Jock left. She's surprised, but George works it out. I liked that Timmy walked him home. Yeah, I liked that too. He's a very he's a very honourable dog. I know, he's a good boy. The, the bit which I found really bizarre was all the boys decide at once that they hate Cecil Dearlove. Hmm. Seemingly just because of his name. Yes. They know nothing else about him at all. They know nothing. I know, poor little thing. Other than he's called Cecil Dearlove and they just like are like, he sounds frightfully horrible. Does he though? He just sounds like he's got a different kind of name. I know, and usually they're so nice. And they meet people and they're happy to meet them. But with him, yeah, they're all like, oh, no, I hate his name. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> there's there's never any comeback or it turns out that actually he surprises them and he's really nice and 
well, as readers, we're just supposed to go along with it and say, yes, he does sound weird. I think because he is just an obstacle to an adventure, he is therefore an enemy. Mm. But no, he certainly doesn't deserve any of the comments made about him. Or indeed what happens in a couple of chapters' time. In chapter 10, they bathe, and as they do, they see Jock passing by in a lorry, and Mr Andrews go by in a very expensive car. Mr Luffy is great company. Julian and Dick are excited about their plan for the night. Jock arrives, and they leave without waking the girls. They get to the yard and peer in at Wooden Leg Sam. They go up to the tunnel, and suddenly they hear a train getting nearer and nearer. A huge, dark train thunders past them, and then all was still. The boys are unnerved. Was it really a spook train? It had no light or signal. As they head to the yard, Dick sprains his ankle. They spend a lot of time looking after him, and they hear the train coming back. Julian is shaken. It's all jolly creepy. Is it? Is it jolly creepy? It's just a train that's gone past. In the dark. I didn't quite understand what was so creepy about these. The, the, just the creepiness of their situation. We'd seen that the trains were running during the day because Anne thought one of them was a volcano. So I didn't get why what was particularly creepy about trains which were unscheduled or what was spooky. I, I might just have just mis be missing something. I think that the specific bit of track in the tunnel is disused. The volcano was caused by trains on different parts of the line because I think they just sort of say there's lots of different lines under where they are and that specific bit is deserted. Towards the end of the book I was actually really kind of struggling keeping in my head a sort of the layout of where they were the kind of how the the thing was working I was a bit embarrassed not being able to keep up with the famous <laughs> Bless you. But I couldn't quite understand how the whole layout worked and which track was which and where are they now and the... it's completely understandable and I felt that too reading it um going back through it to try and explain it simply was very difficult one of the best things to do is probably watch either of the tv adaptations because there's a great bit in the 70s version where they literally focus on a map of a railway line for a good few seconds <laughs> oh, and it's, it's just like two straight lines but yeah they really go in for a hard focus on it i think in the book it's a bit like with um farmhand will where enid blighton started off explaining it really well and then it just sort of trails off because i felt the same way about the train lines like it was so they're running here they're running there this is where the train is this is where it shouldn't be that i wasn't really the trains didn't really hold me because it was all just just all over the place there was a tunnel and there was a ladder and there was a trailer and there was a wall like there was so much I think the on. most important thing about it is that we realize the train shouldn't be running and it hasn't got a light on it and it doesn't seem like anybody is driving it that's like the important bit. yeah so it's scary because it's the night time and it's not it's and because the man who watches the train tunnel says it's a spook train. I think that the man that watches the tunnel is scarier than the train. Yes, agreed. And I still don't know if they think it's the ghost of a train, as in it doesn't really exist, or if it is just actually a train driven by a ghost. I don't know. I don't know. Also, there's a big thing about it will take you, but, I mean, where did that come from and who does it take? Like, nobody. Mm. yeah 
Spooky. Now that's just to keep the children away though, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Spook trains. <laughs> Chapter 11 is titled Mostly About Jock. I love her titles sometimes because they just are exactly what they say on the tin. Yes. The three boys go back to the yard, wondering if they should tell the girls. Jock goes home with Timmy at his heels, and he hears the sound of someone at the farm. It's Peters, one of the men who works at the farm. He tells Jock he had a breakdown in one of the lorries and only just got home. Jock hopes Peters doesn't tell his mother and stepfather he was out so late. That morning, Jock asks if he can take food to the campers, but Cecil was due to arrive. Later, when Jock is... Playing with Cecil, i.e. dressed as a Native American and terrifying him, the children arrive. While they're talking, Jock accidentally lets slip that he and Dick and Julian went, went out the night before. But all this is interrupted because Jock is about to get into trouble, as Cecil told on him. This was well, this and the following chapter, they both left a kind of bad taste in my mouth. Agreed. Because of Cecil. I'm, I'm reading it and... I'm wondering, are we supposed to actually like these children? And I don't know if you picked up anything else which was going on in this chapter, the kind of subtext. This is the only bit which actually highlighted. This is the arrival of Cecil. It says, Cecil arrived by car. He was about the same age as Jock, though he was small for a 12 years old. He had curly hair, which was too long, and his grey flannel suit was very, very clean and well-pressed. I think we're supposed to conclude that this is an effeminate boy. Oh! That's really interesting. This is what she's actually saying in the subtext. It's not just that he plays with soldiers. There were times in the past where there were kids' books in the 30s, 40s, and you would have a character of the sissy, the sissy boy. And I think the reason why he doesn't like the rough and tumble of playing Red Indians is because he doesn't like the things boys should be doing, and his hair's too long, and he's too well-kept. And I just thought... Oh, I don't think I do like the famous five. They're not being nice here. And it's such a shame because mm. because Enid Blyton has written two girls in George and Anne, two completely different ways to be girls. Unfortunately, she's saying, but there is only one way to be a boy, and it's sad. It makes it very comfortable for modern-day readers once you pick that up. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that because I saw Mrs Andrews says, um, I'm afraid Cecil's a bit of a mother's boy, you know. And then she sort of laughs about Jock being unkind to him. And I thought, okay, yeah, like he's, you know, he's an indoor boy and they're making fun of him. But I didn't think anything of his nice suit and his longer hair. And they are, of course, yeah, like you said, there's there's two ways we've seen to be a girl, but there's only one way to be a boy. That's not fair. I think we're even supposed to, to draw conclusions from his name, Cecil is a little play on sissy. Mm. And I think that's why they're all laughing at his name. Yeah. And and dear love as well. So it's kind of very feminised name. He isn't one of the real boys. And it's quite mean. And I know you have it's to read it mean. in the, the yeah. context of the age. But it, it, it doesn't make for nice reading nowadays. It just comes across as very gendered bullying now yes and it and it doesn't sound nice no I that is fascinating because obviously you read it and it's horrible and I was sort of going along the lines of do they just dislike him because he's posh Mm. the children are very posh though that was my thought the children seem to be you know whenever they meet other people they always seem to be posher than them so they surely, you know, they're all at boarding school and everything, so it can't be that. But I couldn't put my finger on 
what it was, but you've absolutely nailed it. That's that's what it is, even down to his name. It was it was almost like for the rest of the book, unfortunately, I I was just sort of thinking, I want to know what happens to Cecil next. I want to follow his story. He's going to have an interesting plot. I know. I like Cecil. <laughs> Do you know what? There is a spin-off. Cecil, dear love, the teenage years. Good, because he just wants to play, you know, nicer, quieter games. There's nothing wrong with that. And you know what? He probably looks nice because they are all bathing in streams <laughs> and he actually, you know, has some clean clothes <laughs> on. So maybe they could take a little look at themselves. Yeah. He sleeps in a bed with a duvet rather than in a sleeping bag, possibly with other people putting their shoes in it. (laughs) In chapter 12, the children aren't very kind to Cecil, whose only crime seems to have been to only want to play soldiers, because that's made a big deal of that he only wants to play soldiers. So what? Mrs. Andrews appears, giving them food, and tells them that Jock has been sent to bed. George is sulking. The other three talk to Jock through his window, who I guess now has to spend the rest of his day on his own at a stranger's house, which would be horrific for me. Mm-hmm. And he didn't even get to see the puppies. I mean, what is he going to do? There you go. There is a short story within itself. Cecil's day at Ollie's farm. <laughs> I just love it if while they're all off wandering across the moors and running through tunnels, Cecil just sits <laughs> down with a cup of tea and just uses simple logic... Works out everything that's going yeah. on, solves the mystery. Absolutely. And they're all just still arguing and running off the trains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Cecil. Okay. Bless him. I love him. They then return to camp. Julian and Dick tell Anne and George, who is listening but with her back to them, about the spook trains, and then they all fall out. This is George to Anne. If you weren't such a little coward, too afraid to go with us, I'd have been able to go, said George, unkindly. Julian was disgusted. He saw Anne's hurt face and was angry with George. Shut up, George, he said. You're being horrid saying catty things like that. Oh, catty. Um, I'm astonished at you. George was ashamed of herself, but she was too proud to say so. She glared at Julian. And I'm astonished at you, she said. After all the adventures we've had together, you try and keep me out of this one. But you will let me come next time, won't you, Julian? What, after your frightful behaviour today? Said Julian, who could be just as obstinate as George when he wanted to. Certainly not. This is my adventure, and Dick's, and perhaps Jock's. But not yours or Anne. Horrible. I know, infuriating all being so mean to each other and then out of nowhere george just picks on anne it's like she hasn't done anything i know do you notice that dick mostly stays out of all this (laughs) well dick he's the person who he's witnessing a crime happening and by not saying anything he's becoming a conspirator yeah so he you know he at any point could have said you know, Julian, usually we all do things together, but he just shuts up and goes with it, so... It comes, it all becomes an accomplice. The thing is, Dick is usually my favourite. Yeah, because he's adorable, usually. He, I mean, he's usually just up for anything, and he just wants to have some fun. He's living his best life. Exactly, exactly. And he's up for anything, and all go... And he just seems to be the one who's enjoying himself and gets on with everybody. But it's just a shame mm. that in this time he gets dragged down into yeah, the boys' club. There is, come on, Dick. There is a nice bit. It's an Anne bit though. Uh, just after what you've read, where um, well, first it says Anne blinked back tears. Bless her little heart. She hated this sort of thing. She got up to get dinner ready. 
perhaps after a good meal they would all feel better and I put a note in here saying it's time to buck up with a bun yay <laughs> if you have some food or perhaps have another egg and forget about it but if you if she has something to eat <laughs> everything's gonna everything's gonna be good don't you worry Anne Anne cooks, George sulks, Dick and Julian ask Mr. Luffy for a map and they ask him for a lift so that they can go to the nearest town and make some inquiries without George. In chapter 13, Anne has made dinner. Mr. Luffy suspects that there has been a row but doesn't interfere. Again, very good adult behaviour. Yes. He offers to take any of them to town and George says no. He takes the others and Anne feels bad that they left George. It does say though, Anne... um secretly thought that George would be much better left on her own to work off her ill feelings that afternoon, which I thought was very mature and sensible of her. Her and Mr Luffy are very alike. He also realised that maybe they needed a bit of space. To be honest, George is a bit insufferable in these chapters. I, She was so sulky and so mm. moody and doesn't want to know. Perhaps it's justifiably, but I just found it quite an a, a tedious thing to read. At the station, they encounter old Tucky. <laughs> I can't say that without laughing. I mean, Jen, you have not ventured far enough into the famous five books to meet some of the more creatively named characters. So, <laughs> Okay, so I've got that to look forward to. Absolutely. There's one that I can think of now that I desperately want to say. Can I say it? Yeah. In... Five go to Demon's Rocks. They meet a man called Jeremiah Boogle. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, that's number 19. I've just looked. I have to wait ages to meet Jeremiah Boogle. Yeah, you've got a long, you've mm. got a long time to meet Jeremiah Boogle, but it'll be worth it. Mm. Jeremiah Boogle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so good. Jeremiah Boogle. <laughs> Are you all right, Jen? Oh, just a bit of silence. I feel like you're not going to come back from Jeremiah this. Boogle. Oh, I'm glad you said that. That was wonderful. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm back. Right. At the station, they encounter old Tucky. He tells them that the tunnel... <laughs> Stop it. He tells them that the tunnel hasn't been used for years. The tunnel runs to Kilty Vale, and it used to join the tunnel at Roker's Vale, but that was bricked up when the roof fell in. Tucky gives them the old map and they try to work out how to catch a spook train. They return to camp and George apologises. They all go to bed. At 11pm, Julian spots George setting a trap. She ties the string to the front of their tent and ties it to her toe, so when it pulls, it would wake her. Dick and Julian squeeze out the side of their tent and don't wake her up. At the yard, the train comes out of the tunnel. Dick sprints to the tunnel opening and Julian runs to the other end of the tunnel. Which just reminds me, didn't Dick sprain his ankle a couple of chapters ago? That, he's recovered from that remarkably that well. That is forgotten very quickly. But then that happened to Martin in Five on Kieran Island again. He sprained his ankle falling down a quarry and he was alright. Yeah, they're very robust to these children. Yeah, sprain heals within the hour. In chapter 14, Julian arrives at Kilty's yard and he was expecting the train at any moment. He waits about 40 minutes and then returns to Dick. Julian says the train didn't come out, but he thought he heard a rumble of one a long way off. Julian mentions the second entrance, the bricked-up one, and they agreed that they couldn't look at it now. They return to camp, forgetting about George's string, but as she wakes and checks on the boys, they're already asleep. Before another row, before another row Jock arrives, to say goodbye, he's being packed off to his step-aunt's house, although Julian says he should just stay with them. 
The power struggle between Julian and George continues, and George leaves with Timmy. Jock appears with his stuff, but soon he hears the whistle his stepfather uses to call on him. I mean, sound of music or what? (laughs) The children hide, and Mr Andrews appears, asking Mr Luffy where Jock is. Mr Andrews is rude about the children, and Mr Luffy defends them plainly and points out that Mr Andrews seems very concerned about the train yard, which Mr Andrews denies. When he's gone, Mr Luffy tells Jock he can see why he would want to stay away from his stepfather and does not send him home. The the bit which I found quite jaw-dropping, actually, in this chapter was that they just openly tell George that they went out the yes. night before and, and that her, her trap didn't work. That seems even worse and even more of a betrayal mm-hmm, the second time mm-hmm. around than it was initially. They know how upset she'll be. They know how livid she'll be to just casually mention it. And then they make a joke out of it too. So this time around, it's it's I'm on her side. It's I would be I would be really hurt by that too. Yeah, yeah. They learnt nothing, and they just did the exact same thing. And this time, they just openly discussed it in front of her, like they care that little about her feelings. I'd be enraged. And they weren't even apologetic. In chapter fifteen, George is heading to the train yard. She takes the same path that Julian had taken the night before and sees a curious bump in the heather. She starts to dig. Timmy assumes she's digging for rabbits and starts to help. But he falls because Timmy always falls down things that aren't rabbit holes. (laughs) George discovers it's an old vent hole and she has to work really hard to uncover it to get to Timmy. But then she can't work out how to rescue him. She clambers further down and realises she's in the tunnel itself. Then she sees the train. Silent and out of date, but before she could do anything, Timmy falls with a howl. Luckily, he's fallen onto a soft pile of soot. George hugs him and gets covered in soot herself. I was horrified at Timmy falling down. And for a second, I thought, oh my God, he's going to die. And then, you know, I was like, no, he's not. Nothing's going to happen to him because the famous five book. But it was, that was awful. It, it sounded like Timmy had fallen onto a giant pile of jagged metal yes absolutely horrendous stuff of nightmares yes it did yeah oh but thankfully it was just a pile of soot but didn't we work out that he fell six foot at one point (laughs) not in this book in a different book i'm sure Mm. he's fallen down six foot or was it george that fell six foot they're all very robust i think uncle quentin fell down a big trench at some point probably knowing (laughs) him (laughs) (laughs) together They climb into one of the trucks to have a better look when she hears a noise. She sees that this is where the tunnel forks and saw where it had been bricked up. Then the walls started to move. She sees a man enter. Just as she considers sneaking out of the truck, it started moving. It goes through the hole in the wall and into another tunnel. George could see men lounging about and the hole closed meaning George was trapped. But she was brave and working out a plan. In chapter 16... The others are eating. Ah, wonderful. They leave Mr. Luffy at camp and set off towards the tunnel with the intention of walking all the way through it. They find the bricked at wall, having no idea that George was behind it. Jock said that it must have been a spook train as they reach Kilter's yard having seen nothing. They decide to walk back, but Anna's had enough of the darkness and walks over the top, reaching the tunnel mouth before the boys do. She sees Mr. Andrews and men from the farm and realises they're going to bump into Julian, Dick and Jock in the tunnel. She waits for a long time, but none of them come out. Bravely, she accosts Wooden Leg Sam. He was the one who told Mr. Andrews the children were in the tunnel. She decides to run back to camp, but she loses her way. Mr. Luffy! I know! (laughs) I love, as she runs, 
Anne actually gives herself a full screaming <laughs> monologue. And I just have this mad image of her fleeing across the moors, just giving her this screaming it pep is, talk to it herself. It is amazing. Anne <laughs> kind of might be losing it yeah. a bit in this moment. Yeah, I actually just came to that bit where she, she staggered on and on. Mr. Luffy, oh, Mr. Luffy, where are you? Mr. Luffy! But no, Mr. Luffy answered her. She came around the gorse bushes she thought were the ones sheltering the camp. But alas, the camp was not there. Anne had lost her way. I'm lost, said Anne, the tears running down her cheeks. But I mustn't get scared. I must try to find the right path now. Oh dear, I'm quite lost. Mr. Luffy! Poor Anne. She stumbled on blindly, hoping to come to the camp, calling every now and again. Mr. Luffy, can you hear me? Mr. Luffy! I I love it. I absolutely love it. I just like to imagine her sprinting at full pelt and giving herself this discussion with herself. I just find it really funny. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just running through the moors. But I mustn't get scared. I mustn't. I must try and find the right path. Oh, she's amazing. In chapter 17, the boys have been captured and taken to the place where George and Timmy were hidden. The boys are tied up and told they'll be left there until the men finish their business. The men leave, and as the boys worry what to do, Timmy finds them in the darkness and licks them all. George cuts them free. George cuts them free. They don't deserve her. And explains where they are, (laughs) sorry. George rescues the boys who got captured. Jock finds a light switch, and they have a good look around. They see boxes of whiskey and brandy and other black market goods. They realise that it's stolen, hidden in the lorries at Jock's farm, and then loaded onto the train and unloaded here for storage. They try and find a way out. It's quite convoluted. So they go and steal stuff and bring it to the farm in the lorries. Then they take the lorries from the farm to wherever the train stops, put it on the train. The train then comes into this hidden bit of tunnel for them to store the stuff. It's really... Yeah, I think that's sort of... That was when I kind of just gave up with the spook train plot because um, what's the point? I can't help thinking... The, what is the point of the trains? Do you draw a lot less attention just carrying the goods down into the tunnels in the first place? They could just drive their vans into the tunnel. Yes. You could creep past the watchman, make no noise without having trains going down there. No one would be any the wiser. The famous five would never have any idea. And they'd just get on with it. Mm-hmm. They just had to try and be fancy. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the big problem here, trying to be fancy. In chapter 18, Julian believes the caves are not man-made, but the hiding place may have been used during the last war. Now, this was what I was talking about earlier with a reference to, you know, a place in history. Uh, The book was published in 1948, but of course, if you say the last war, you could mean the First World War or the Second World War, and, I mean, my assumption would be the Second World War. Also, if there'd only been one war, you wouldn't refer to it as the last war. You'd just refer to it as the war. Yeah. And also, I think there was a lot more sort of underground stuff in the UK going on in World War Two than in World War One. Yes, yes. Most of that was happening in mainland Europe. There was, there was kind of like that kind of big infrastructure change where they were, they were using, using the railways, they're using the, the, cities and the canals everything was being repurposed mm. and used in different ways it makes sense it's world war ii so that sort of sets it in the late 40s 
They find a door, but it won't open. Of course, they have food with them, and so they stop to eat it. <laughs> Again, absolutely nothing to drink, though. Yeah, they have no drink in this. They're worried about Anne, and then they decide to try and open the big door in the bricktop wall. They manage it and silently walk up the tunnel. They freeze as they see someone coming. With nowhere to hide, George suddenly remembers the vent. They leave Timmy down below to hide and they go up the ladder. The men realise the children have escaped. Sadly, George cannot climb any higher. When Timmy fell, he blocked the vent with debris. In chapter 20... This is my favourite bit that you've written. What with four (laughs) children in a vent and Anne rampaging on the moors like Kate Bush, (laughs) Mr Luffy has got worried. Oh, she is just like a tiny Kate Bush. Mr. Luffy, it's me. Come home now. I'm so cold. Miss, <laughs> uh, no, uh, he heads up to Jock's farm, which is actually called Ollie's farm, but I thought I'd refer to it as Jock's farm because there is nobody called Ollie in the book. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's just confusing. He sees Mrs. Andrews who is just as worried because all the men have gone, and so has her husband. But where's the good farm guy? Uh, This was when I thought he would be back, because why has he gone too? Because he isn't a baddie. Maybe he's having a nap, or playing with the puppies. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, that'll be it. (laughs) Mr. Luffy doesn't trouble her with the lost children too. He heads straight to the police station, and the sergeant musters six men and a police car. Now, I'm hoping some of the police officers travelled with Mr. Luffy, because I don't think you can fit six men into one police car. Also... Um, I like that they got six police officers because when at the start of the chapter he's wondering what to do, he it actually says it was hopeless for one man to search the moors. Half a dozen or more were needed for that. So he gets half a dozen. Half a dozen. He's the moor, so perfect. So you need seven men to do the entire moors. <laughs> he's the moor on the moors. Oh, there we are. Brilliant. They find Anne on the moor, who tells them the boys are in the tunnel. The police head into the tunnel. Back in the vent, the children are discovered by the men, and Julian is dragged from the ladder, and I didn't feel sorry for him at all. Just as they are about to be prisoners again, the police arrive, and Timmy assists in rounding up the crooks. Mr. Luffy and Anne greet them out of the tunnel, and Mr. Luffy thinks Anne is a grand girl and as brave as a lion. They head back to the farm and get a meal and a bath. Mr. Luffy has some wise words for Mrs. Andrews. And she runs a bath for the soot-covered children. Dick announces the adventure is over, and Jock calls it smashing. This is meant to be Dick's word of the holiday, but I don't recall him saying it apart from once in Chapter 7. The end. Very good. Actually, that, that final chapter, what I found just astonishing was Mrs. Andrews, her reaction to the disintegration of her marriage. <laughs> it was just so... It was just, okay, well, I'll just run some bars, make some dinners, can't be helped. <laughs> and also, it's her second marriage. That's... Yes, yes. And she's just received the news. We don't know what happened to the first one, but she's going she's gonna to be quite a modern woman with her third husband yeah, that she's yeah. going to surely have next. Yeah, and she's just she's like, oh, well, that, isn't that terrible that he was involved in that black marketeer stuff? She, is, she has just received the news about her <laughs> husband. And along with the news, she has to look after make meals and run baths for five kids and just care for them even though they're actually responsible for the end of her marriage (gasps) you know what though oh 
Do you know who she's going to marry? She's going to marry oh, Will, the old yes, farmhand, and they're going to run the best farm oh, oh. on the moors. They will adopt little Cecil, and he'll be able to have all the soldiers he wants and be able to run around the meadows oh, yeah. in his prince's outfit, and it'll all be wonderful. Yeah. Let Cecil be himself. Katie, do you remember when you wrote me an extra ending for the one with that little dog? Yes. I think that your services have been called upon again. We need to hear about Will and Mrs. Yes, Andrews yes. adopting Cecil. I want that story. <laughs> Katie, for the next podcast, please. We need closure on their stories. Right, I can do Will and Mrs. Andrews. However, they can't adopt Cecil. Cecil has a family of his own. I know. And also, Jock would be a horrible brother. So if you just do... Maybe if you do a little bit about Will and Mrs. Andrews and then just a few lines about how happy and accepted Cecil is. Okay. Yeah. I can yeah. do that for you. That is not a problem. What it is, is Will teaches Jock some stuff about gender politics yes! and how it's <laughs> perfectly okay to just express yourself differently and Jock and Cecil become best friends. I love it. All Jock needs is is someone to just sit him down and teach him some lessons about how yes. there are different ways to be a boy. Yes. And I think Will is going to be that person. Yes. I will write that for you. Not a problem. <laughs> uh, you can hear that in episode eight. In this section, we talk about the TV versions and we play some clips. Now, the first clip is from the version that's filmed in the 1990s. And in this episode, Anne doesn't find a volcano, but there is a bit where they have to drag Dick off the rails in the nick of time. John Turner plays the role of Mr. Andrews and he's actually really good because there is a habit in famous five villains to just play them as ridiculous but he's actually quite intimidating. I do recommend watching this episode. I'm usually quite harsh on the 1990s version because they quite often don't get it quite right but I really recommend watching what I can only refer to as the brawl at the end which is the children minus mm -hmm. Anne, five or six adult men, Timmy and then about five police officers all in a very small amount of space and it's great. It is, and there is, is a very brief appearance of Cecil Dearlove played by Sebastian Armesto who is... Um, Quite a big name now. He was just recently in Broadchurch. That fight is a full-on melee. It is quite wonderful to see. It's a fracas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this clip is George freeing the three boys in the tunnel. It's the usual five children and Tom Graham as Jock. It was directed by Andrew Morgan and written by Alan Seymour. Do all your adventures end like this? No. Timmy's here. Where's George? George? And look, the spook train. And it's real as real. But where are we? The spook train's hiding place. What's the point of sending a silly old train to the yard and straight back here again? Oh, thanks. Come and look at this. Stolen goods old bed. It's a thieves' storeroom. That's how my stepfather made so much money. It's not by farming. He's selling stolen goods. I still don't understand. Someone delivers them to the old rail yard. They hide them in the train so they can sell them off safely. And it's lorries from the farm that take them away. In this, Tom Graham as Jock 
was the first child guest star that I've watched and wondered if during the audition process for the lead four, they kept a note of children that auditioned because he looks like he could be a Julian. There was definitely Julian potential. <laughs> and and I think it was very good, actually. Um, it's hard to find decent child actors. And most of the main cast did a reasonable job. And I thought Jock was good, too. Yeah, Tom... Tom Graham went on to be in Grange Hill and The Archers for quite a long time. In the 1970s version, it's over two episodes and therefore it's quite slow paced. I mean, you can't win because if you try and pack it all into 25 minutes, it gets lost. But if you do it over 50, especially this episode, there's not really enough going on. Not enough running over the moors. The bit of the moor that they run over as the bit that they ran over in Five on Kieran Island again and Five run away together and yes. And I think the tunnel is actually the same tunnel that they find in Five on Kieran Island again. However, there's a few less visits to the tunnel and the ending is much more condensed. George is rescuing the boys and it's actually edited down into one scene. And the click you will hear is the light switch going on. The usual cast are joined by Chris Wilkinson as Jock. It was directed by James Gatwood and written by Gail Renard. They've tied my feet so tightly, the rope's cutting into my ankles. What's going to happen now? I can hear something. It's a dog. Whining. Timmy! Look, Dick, it's Timmy! Where's George then? Here. George! Where are we? You know that second time it's bricked up, don't you? Yeah. Well, there's a way in through the wall. A whole bit opens in an open sesame sort of way. Oh, see that? That's inside of the brick wall. There are two walls across the second fork. With big space in between. And that's where we and the sweet train are hiding. Clever, eh? Wow! This must be some kind of warehouse. All stolen, I'll bet. This must be the holding place for the goods until the heat wears off. They must use the lorries from my stepfather's farm. Bring the stuff down to the railway yard at night, then load it all on the train. That way they can hide everything at once, and no one's the wiser. We are the famous five. Yeah! Is that the, the, my favourite theme song? Yes, because the other one is just... Yeah, there's nothing of the first one. We are the famous five, Julie, Dick yeah. and George and Timmy the dog. The, f- the first time that I ever heard that was watching this episode for this podcast. And it's been in my head non-stop yes. since then. Any time that my thoughts are silent... Yeah, it gets stuck I in there bo- forever. My head is playing that theme tune in, my, in the background. Good. <laughs> Whether there's adventure to be found. Just a clue or a secret yeah. message. Bring the famous vibe around. <laughs> so, what have we learned from Five Go Off to Camp? I've learned that tying string to your toe does not guarantee you won't miss out. Only Anne and myself would name a dog Cuddle. If a farmer has a flash car, then he is suspicious. Yes, true. So true. Charlie, have you? what have you learned from Five Go Off to Camp? Oh, well, I will reuse a line that I said earlier. What I learned was, what we should all know anyway, there's more than one way to be a boy. Yes, agreed. Oh, That's quite yeah. a sensible one. 
That is. It's a good one, though. Also, the the other thing that I learned is why dogs walk around around in circles. It's it's because they used to live in a, a long reeds or sleep in long reeds. And that's why Timmy likes walking around in circles to make a nest sleep. And you've both learned what a cinder is. Yes. Very important. Yes, it's not a massive brick. <laughs> <laughs> I I was so alarmed at that point. Me too. The next book is called Four Visit One at the Hospital. (laughs) (laughs) Now we come to the tricky topic of hero of the book. Um, I know we can't choose him, but an absolute special mention goes to Cecil Dearlove, who became the best criminal detective in England. (laughs) Yeah. For me, I was definitely leaning towards Anne because, I mean... She was a bit more mad than usual, but I feel like she was one of the only ones that really sort of like retained her personality in in this. <laughs> yes, it's absolutely Anne for me. While the boys are making their boys club and George is off sulking around the moor, Anne is doing her own adventure. She's making friends with Mr. Love- Luffy. She does. And she saves the day in the end. If it hadn't been for her yes. running off across the moor, those kids would probably still be in the tunnel now. <laughs> just a bunch of skeletons. I agree. So, yes, ultimately, she She, saves the day. She ran for help. And she stayed out of the worst of the bullying. Yes. Yeah, I've I've put that Anne isn't a coward. And who would want to get up at midnight to do anything anyway? Exactly. Yes, absolutely. And she was brave when it counted, so she does deserve it. Also, special mention, two special mentions in this book. Special mention to Mr. Luffy. Yes. And this is the first time where we've gone... I wish we could award Hero of the Book to somebody who wasn't in the five, but that's kind of not how it works. No, but we did, we can have a special mention because I still think about Sooty Lenoir sometimes because I loved him so much. So uh, Cecil Dearlove and Mr. Luffy can join the Sooty Lenoir Hall of Fame. Honorary heroes. Yeah. Yes, agreed. And actually, us picking Anne this week means that Anne has um, been Hero of the Book twice, and this is the seventh book. Everyone else has had one each except Timmy, who also is twice a hero. Annie's leading the human heroes. Good for her. Good for her because she gets so little credit. People forget that there is a lot more to Anne than meets the eye at first. Yeah. There is a, a kids and young adults author, Robin Jarvis, really great author. And I was listening to an interview of him the other day and he was talking about how much he hated Anne because she was so wet and never did anything. It's like, no, you don't understand Anne. There is a lot more to her. She has depths. Yeah. And she's she brave. Is. She's she's brave in her own way because she is the most frightened, but she gets things done and she faces her fear and does it anyway. So good for you, Anne. Yes. And she's incredibly practical and useful. And a lot of the time I feel like she's the real backbone of the group because yes, it is cooking, but if she wasn't there frying up dog biscuits and who knows what else, <laughs> they would just go hungry. Uh-huh. They would be the sardines <laughs> and cake. They really would. And that is such a lazy way to express Anne's character because that just shows that you haven't read the books. And just as we were talking earlier on, I thought, isn't it so ironic that that phrase that's wrongly attributed to the famous five is lashings of ginger beer? And actually, all we're proving at the minute is, like you said earlier, they don't drink a lot. 
<laughs> so if people are getting like the one iconic quote wrong, they're definitely getting Anne wrong. Yeah. There's more to Anne than meets the eye. Mm-hmm. There's more to all of them than meets the eye. But Anne is the one who is just consistently underrated. And the one who is just seen as the one who cooks and cleans and doesn't do much. She just cleans up after everybody else. And it's really not fair. It's a stupid myth perpetrated by idiots. There, I've said it. <laughs> yeah. You've said it. <laughs> We're here one podcast at a time proving that actually Anne is incredible. Yes. We need to we need to rehabilitate her character in the eyes of the world. Yes. Yes. I have to tell you something exciting that happened to me just this week. Oh my goodness, what was it? I went into a charity shop. I'm actually trying to find all the famous five books for you, Jen, and I'm doing quite well. You are doing amazing. And as I was looking in the children's section, I saw a famous five jigsaw. It was the one specifically about spook trains. So I thought, oh how gosh. can I not buy this for one ninety nine? I remember when they came out, and I think they came out when I was older and thought, I'm not paying £15 for a kid's jigsaw. Uh-huh. But at one ninety nine, when it was specifically about the book we were covering... How could you not? How many pieces is it? 250. That's great! That's like, that's an easy few hours. Yes, but you don't get a picture. Ooh! Oh, it's one of those oh. ones. So what it is is, I mean, it's it's very odd, and I'm glad I bought it. Well, I'm glad I didn't buy it when I was younger, and I'm glad I didn't spend fifteen pounds on it because you get your two hundred fifty piece puzzle with no picture to follow, and you get a little booklet that says Enid Blyton, Famous Five, The Mysterious Train. Okay, which we all know it's not called. Yeah. And then you get a section from some of the chapters. You have to put the pieces together. Obviously, it's a jigsaw. And then you have... That's how they work. Finished picture of the jigsaw is four pictures. Then you get given questions and the answers are in the pictures on the jigsaw. So it says, Northwest, how did George get into the tunnel? And who saw her fall? Well, we know for a fact that George didn't fall into a tunnel in the book. However, in the picture, you see George falling into the tunnel and Anne watching. Oh, so it's had a bit of a rewrite of the the story. But just for the picture... I'll post a picture because I've got photographs of the completed jigsaw. But it just seemed really strange that they decided that they weren't going to go with what actually happens in the book. I'd be intrigued to see these pictures because I don't think I'm quite visualising it. Same. I'd like to see. Have you done the puzzle, Katie? I mean, I'm glad I got it because it was connected to what we were talking about. But I'm certainly not going to get any more. Just very, very strange. It seemed like it was made by somebody who didn't really care about the original Famous Five stories. Oh, very interesting. So, in our next book, which I can see here is going to be called Five Get Into Trouble, very ominous name, what can we expect? Dick gets kidnapped. Really? My goodness. Sounds wild. I look forward to it. Oh, so we're at the end. Thank you so much, Charlie, for doing this episode with us. It's been so much fun. You're you're very welcome. Thank you very much for letting me come on. It's been really enjoyable, fun time. Thank you. It's been so good. Do you have anything that you'd like to plug 
and tell our listeners where you can be found. At the moment, I'm something somewhat between books, but though I'm I'm finishing up one, which I'm hoping to aim towards May. I'm thinking this is the last of my Bristol Murders books, and I think May is probably more realistic than my traditional April. Until then, until then, you can follow me on Weird Bristol and keep up to date with various things I'm doing, and also you get a little fact about the city of Bristol, whether you want one or not. <laughs> That's awesome. And where will we find Weird Bristol? That's uh, at Weird Bristol on Twitter. Fabulous. And it's bits of history, usually the kind of history which people don't know. So if you're interested in the history, if you if you love Bristol like I do, then give it a little go about things you might not know about the, the city. Brilliant. Oh, thank you. Oh, this has been so wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for being our very first special guest. It was an honour. Thank you very much. And disregarding this book, I have to ask you, which member of the Famous Five are you on the team of? Because obviously I'm hashtag Team George. I, I think it's Team Dick. Overall. Oh. Overall, the entire body of work, I think he's yeah. the one who's having... He's having the, the most fun and he's enjoying himself. I think George <laughs> is the close second, but Dick is just there for the most part. Excellent. Not in this book. No, that's, yeah, problematic, this one. Um, Jen, where do you lie currently? Well, I'm going to say then, hashtag Team Anne, because I'm always torn between Anne and Dick. But if you're going to be Team Dick, Charlie, then that means I can be Team Anne and I don't have okay. to feel bad that Dick's being left out. So that Excellent. works out really well. So we are looking for a team, Julian, and a team. Yes. I mean, we're all team Timmy, but... Everyone's team Timmy, yeah. If someone could specifically be that, then we've got our own Famous Five. We can go on adventures. I, I don't know. I think you would struggle finding someone team Julian most of all. I don't know. Well, if you're out there, someone, and you listen and you think, hashtag team Julian, contact us. We need you. At the moment, we're just the terrific three. And we need... We need Julian. And we are all hashtag Team Cecil. If you want to follow us on social media, we are at Famous5Pod and our website is www.famous5pod.wordpress.com And you can drop us an email at famous5pod at gmail.com Yeah, so if you're Team Julian, that's where you're going to tell us. Absolutely. Famous5pod at gmail.com. And if you're in the market for a 250-piece jigsaw, there's now one um, (laughs) going for uh, £2.50. Oh, wow. You're looking to make a tiny profit there. (laughs) 51 pence. Plus postage, because it'll cost to post. Come on, let's, let's say goodbye. So we'll be back next month. Please join us again for Five Get Into Trouble. Bye. 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 Stop. Thank you so much for listening to the Famous Five podcast. And please join us next month for more adventures. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.